0: If you're a single woman, this show might make you decide to quit dating.
1: We live in a culture where there is this heterosexual imperative for women to be in relationships. And I think that's holding us back. I really do. Like, the, mo- the moment that I realized I do not have to be in a relationship to be successful was the moment that I really became liberated as a person.
0: We'll learn why differing gender expectations have made this process hard. Not that any of us knew what we were doing in the first place. People
1: don't know what they're doing and
0: they'll and they admit
1: to it everyone admits to it i don't know what i'm doing i mean you hear that like don't talk about politics or religion like why not shouldn't you <laughs> like weed them out early <laughs> by the way i'm a radical communist <laughs> seriously i'm a radical communist feminist are you okay with that tell me now because i don't want to waste the next 45 minutes let's go
0: my heart
1: I grew up in this very white bread rural community where people were literally getting married in 18, 19. Like there was no 20 something experience of sleeping around that was in my future biography. When I arrived at my 20s, newly single after what was a gut wrenching breakup from my college boyfriend, newly single to a city and just meeting people who over and over said that I'm looking for something casual. I'm looking for something casual. I'm looking for something casual and me sitting there being, what do you, what do you mean by casual? Love isn't casual. Love is pretty serious. It's, it's an intense thing. I mean, I've been in love. Have you been in love? Cause I have, it's really heavy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and them being like, yeah, but I need to keep myself, you know, open and like, Open to what? <laughs> what? What more in life is there to love? I, 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 I sat there. I was looking across the table from these guys who were just so clearly unrepentant and unapologetic about how much they felt like this time period needed to be spent in a certain way, and that was regardless of how cool I was or how interesting I was, that the person across from the table from them didn't matter because more important to them was how they thought their early 20s needed to go.
0: This is YOY. I'm Andrea Salenzi. If you are a woman actively trying to date, you've been there. This isn't a date. Let's just keep things casual. You worry that if you say the wrong thing or text too often, you might scare them away. My guest, Hollywood, has been studying this phenomenon, and it is not your fault. Her research is showing that guys under 30 in major cities just aren't that hungry for relationships. It's not that he's not that into you. He's not that into any of us.
1: Their willingness to let me know that right off the bat, I just found so intriguing you're just so willing to say that you don't want a relationship on the first date that's awesome i mean good for you i'm never gonna speak to you again but good for you
0: guess I should introduce Holly. Don't people know who I am yet? <laughs> I think I've been on this show enough. She is a Harvard grad student and a PhD candidate. <laughs> That's me! And a dating
1: guru. By the way, anyone who tells you they're a dating guru is full of bullshit. Because who
0: else is getting a PhD in dating?
1: I can tell you having done the field exam myself, there are very few people out there that I would consider experts in relationships
0: and dating based on, you know, in a pure academic sense. Conducting the interview is my friend, Avery.
2: Turn this volume down.
0: Holly and I studied at Wesleyan together about five years ago. That's a school where Avery just graduated from. I remember Holly's red hair and giant, intense eyes. She was so crazy smart and energetic, it was hard to be around her. Now, years later, we are both finding so much inspiration in each other's work, and I'm ready to move to California just to hang out with her. When I listen to this interview, I can't stop raising my arms and mouthing words like, why? And, oh my God. It just rings true to me. It feels like when you read a conspiracy theory and then you see the whole world around you differently. So let's get to it. What were we talking about? I know what we were
1: talking about. We were talking about how you're still afraid of being single. <laughs> Tell me more about that. <sighs> okay, so the so the thing is, my
2: college boyfriend and I, like, so I moved to California and I was like, hey, I've got this job in California. This is going to be so great. And he was like, no, I can't do this. And broke up with me like two days after I told him that I was moving out here, which is really weird. Cause we had been dating for, it was like, we'd been dating for officially a year and things were going really great. And, um, we were for a while, we were sending each other like longing, Text messages and talking on the phone every day and like I miss you and it was kind of romantic, like oh, across the country, separated by our career paths, and he is still a grad student at school. And then he was like, I bought a plane ticket. I'm coming to visit you. And I was like, Oh okay, cool, uh great, awesome. And I just kind of imagined that we'd have this like romantic week together. I thought it would be this beautiful exercise in just like letting go of my, like being able to enjoy someone without owning them. It's like, I know he's hooked up with other people probably, but I just won't ask about it and we'll just be together and enjoy this moment together and it'll be beautiful. And he stayed here for a week and the first half was lovely. It was really fun and wonderful and we enjoyed each other a lot. And then this, then I enjoyed it so much. I was like, isn't this kind of sad for you? I kind of miss you. And he was like, no, no. And then I went crazy. I was like, why don't you miss me? And he had so clearly moved on to other women and, like, so didn't care. And then it was just awful because he was, like, in my bed and in my house. And I just wanted to be, like, alone and cry. And I couldn't. And there were days when he would just, like, hang out on my couch. And I wanted to be, like, go away, just go away. Then after he left, I was like, this is the first day of the rest of my life. I am so happy to be single. But then it, like, set in right away, the feeling of inadequacy of like, oh no, you know, something's wrong with me. I have to find someone else or I have to like hook up with people. And I don't even particularly enjoy sex and I don't particularly enjoy dating. But uh, you talk about this in your research, like the need to keep dating. So why help me explain why I feel
1: it's like the compulsion to date. I don't know if I quite frame it that way. Uh, (laughs) well, I think women are particularly socialized to think that they are somehow deficit um, deficient if they are not in a monogamous relationship. And I think that's really dangerous way to be in some ways, but also, you know, I, I look at this both ways. I say it's really potentially dangerous. It's also really nice and sweet that women have a compulsion to define themselves relationally. And I don't mean that. I I think that it's more of our society, uh, putting a huge premium on romantic relationships in that self-definition that without this romantic relationship women feel lost, and they, to an extreme degree, put that romantic relationship above and beyond anything else they can cultivate in their lives so they don't cultivate these kind of peer friendships or friendships with their family until they feel like they've hit that one bar and they have that security and that's something that I think is Definitely coming out of my research. That sense of prioritizing one's bros before hoes, to put it colloquially.
0: When you lack a clear culture of bros before hoes, it's easy to feel inadequate if you're not in a relationship. Holly sees this as a larger cultural narrative. One of the things I think about when I watch a lot of old romantic comedy movies, which I do, I study
1: them like texts at this point. Uh, Is that there's, um, in a lot of movies, there's this absence of female antagonist. Hmm. She's always an object to be acted on by a male hero in the story. And there's there's very few stories where women are not the prize to be won. And I think this is a cultural narrative that we tell over and over again. It's a cycle where women are consistently the object. And when you do find movies where women are given agency and women do make choices, um, we rarely get the kind of narrative that women are defining themselves outside of a career orientation. Uh, Like, oh, she's a powerhouse. Like, what's her face in The Devil Wears Prada? Yeah. That's that's what we're built up. You have a choice between a cozy, romantic, happy home life with you know your husband who looks like Paul Rudd, and your like two point five children. It's ambiguous how many you have, right? They're just kind of young and blonde and beautiful, running around your feet, and this house in the suburbs and that cute little red dog house with Fido and
0: Cruella Deville. It's easy for us to say as sophisticated ladies, that we should have grown out of this idea of either being a housewife or Anna Wintour. But it can be a hard image to shake for many women, because it's tied to how we're raised. Holly grew up in a decaying tourist town in the Pocono Mountains with a waitress mom, and she really wanted to be a good kid, live a moral life. The problem is that being a good girl and having the right life in the context where she grew up, meant staying sexually pure, marrying someone you met in college, and becoming an elementary school teacher. She still feels like the world's punishing her for not choosing that path. I thought when
1: I was growing up that men wouldn't love me if I wasn't this soft, pliable uh, accessory to a suburban lifestyle that they thought was their just rewards for being a man. And I know that sounds terrible for me to say, uh, but you know, this is this has been a product of a lot of self development where that was the shadow I grew up in. And I grew I was I was a little hellraiser and I wasn't that girl and I never knew I knew I was never that girl. I was this kind of girl that would take off and sleep in my car for a couple of days because I didn't want to go home to what was a kind of messed up home life and I was never gonna be this like cute, blonde, blue eyed, cheerleader type that was going to get a teaching degree. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was writing essays basically saying, fuck the state, smash the hierarchy. Like, I-, I wasn't that girl, but I nevertheless felt I had to be that girl. Like, I never had a boyfriend in high school. And I didn't really want one, but I thought the absence of having a boyfriend meant that I was somehow uh, flawed, that I was not desirable, that I never would be desirable, and that men would never want me. The way I was, and and I was grappling with this tension between feeling like a fucked up sixteen year old girl and wanting so badly to be that like cookie cutter housewife who looked like her life could be a snapshot in a Martha Stewart Living magazine. And I I knew there was never, I knew there was never any way I was going to be that woman. But like for the first good eight years of my my life, until maybe
0: four or five years ago, I thought that was it. That's who I was going to be, no matter what I did. Two years ago, her work as a qualitative researcher changed drastically. I submitted my master's thesis and I made this decision that
1: there was no way that my dissertation was going to be on the same subject material as my master's thesis. Um, I felt hollowed out by the whole process of writing that manuscript and doing the research that was necessary for that, which was... A useful and very important kind of research. Uh, I was studying inner city housing poverty, which is a huge problem in this country, and it's not like I'm poo pooing it. But the uh, you know, as a qualitative researcher, I walk into blighted neighborhoods every single day, and I, in no way, am trying to diminish that. It was a hugely painful experience for me to see poverty up close every morning. I wake up at 6 a.m. morning literally stepping over heroin addicts passed down on sidewalks in inner-city Baltimore to do interviews so early in the morning so I could get out of that neighborhood before noon when everybody wakes up and the city becomes dangerous again. But I had to relive seeing those kind of things every single day when I was listening to the audio, when I was reading the transcriptions, when I was coding the transcription. It was just the reality of this... What I, in my mind, was a broken housing policy was so disheartening. I was like, I can't imagine studying this for another four years. And I told everybody that at Harvard and they were like, "Okay, so what are you going to (laughs) do? If you're not going to do the thing you've studied for the last three years, what are you going to do? And I said, well, you know what I think a lot about? And they're like, what? What do you think a lot about, Holly? I'm like, well, I think a lot about love. (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Are you kidding
0: me? You wanna you wanna study the sociology of love? I was like, Yeah, yeah. Her research decided to focus in on two super liberal cities, Boston and San Francisco. To date, she's interviewed over eighty men and women between the ages of twenty five to thirty five in these cities. Interviews ranging from two hours to an entire day. One of the impetuses of studying what I studied was
1: I wanted to see if the feminist revolution really had any effect on dating. Uh, I come at this basically saying, I think a lot of feminists focused a lot on the workplace and uh, ensuring workplace equality. And you see this with like Sheryl Sandberg's book. And you see this with even the state of the union with Obama was all about like equal rights for pay. And, And a lot of people just totally never seem to think about love and romantic relationships in the context of equality. Mm -hmm. Um, You do see a lot of work like from sociologists like Arlie Hochschild who's talking about equality of household labor and time budget analysis. You see that a lot. You do see, um, in all fairness, that kind of rhetoric coming out of feminism. But what about how people are viewing the opposite sex in their romantic lives? has that changed? Has, has the expectation for what the other gender is supposed to be in our romantic life plan. Has that changed? And I wanted to figure that out. And so my, my hypothesis was sort of based on this idea of, I can't study everywhere in America. I'm certainly not going to South Carolina to study gender roles. Like that's just going to be an obvious, okay, (laughs) what did you expect to find? Really? You went to South Carolina. Uh, I wanted to go to the two most liberal cities in America. I mean, there's all kinds of other things that come along with that. They're also two of the most ludicrously expensive cities to live in in America. So we got like, you know, rent things to consider. And I have no idea how to factor that into my research. I'm, I'm basically asking people like, how many roommates do you have? Like seven, 10, 12. And like, how old are you? 30, can't afford anything, barely can afford to eat. But that also plays into how they view dating. Like if you can't afford rent, how does that affect how you date? How does it affect how adult you feel? Like, do you feel like you've grown up if you can't afford to live on your own? And that actually comes out a lot. A lot of people feel like, um, they can't meet the bare minimum expectations for what adulthood is because their jobs don't afford them the kind of living conditions that they thought adults were supposed to achieve by now. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and by that virtue, does that extend and does that bleed into how they date and how they evaluate dating partners?
0: From these interviews, she discovered a phenomenon. This is what really blows my mind. It's called the adult switch. The bluntest way to explain this, and there are a lot of exceptions amongst guys, is basically that before a man goes through the adult switch and starts to see himself as an adult, he's aimless at dating.
1: So the adulthood switch is, is something that I see is this moment In the course of one's life, where they wake up one morning and recognize that I'm an adult now. I am definitively 100% an adult now. And there's no going back and pretending that I'm not. And And it
2: really happens that quickly? Like it's one fine morning? No, it's not
1: like one fine morning. (laughs) If only. Uh, It's not like that. I I do think that it's a a steady progress. Um, And I, I think, but I think it's given us a lot of weight, that feeling. That, like, settledness in feeling an adult that I think men, more so than women, uh, use to determine how they're going to date. And I think that's an important finding because women don't let feeling like an adult get in the way of finding the person that they really want to be with. Um, Because, I argue, I think a lot of women are looking for a teammate in the growing up process, They're looking for somebody that will walk alongside them through all the struggle and frustrations that come with what they think is achieving adulthood. And the difference is I think a lot of men are socialized and even expected to do it alone. And that is, I think, largely what I'm seeing played out differently amongst men and women and not universally. I'm not trying to say that all women do this and all men do that. Um, there are definitely people that fall all over the gamut, but it's something that I didn't quite anticipate finding in part because i I kind of came at this with no expectations of what I was gonna find like I, I I honestly, I was like, all right, maybe I'll find that guys are more interested in casual sex than women, like based on evolutionary psychology, which is a load of bullshit uh by the way. <laughs> They'll never find me on the, like, supporting side of evolutionary psychology. Uh, but, you know, maybe, maybe there'll be some patterns that I won't anticipate, and that was one of them.
2: Is there anything that, like, triggers the adult switch for men? Like, what is, what usually brings it upon them?
1: I think earning more than 80K. <laughs> really? No, I, no, I, 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 I think career success is a huge component of it, yeah. um, I joke about k only because in the back of my mind, that seems to be like the litmus test for whether or not you've succeeded at your career is earning more than 80000 a year. Um, but I, I think there are definitely uh, cultural markers that build up. And if someone says, you know, one of my questions is like, do you feel like an adult? Do, would you identify as an adult right now? And they said, if they say no, I always follow up with, so what do you need to do? What do you need to achieve? What do you need to get? What do you need to, what do you, what's still um, missing in your life that's going, that prevents you from feeling like an adult based on your own definition of what adulthood is? And, And a lot of times it's just basic cultural markers. It's like owning a house or buying a
0: car or paying off my student loans. So that's the adult switch. It's a term we'll come up against over and over again in this show. The other trend emerging from my guest Hollywood's research is this phenomenon. She calls it the reverse timeline. That's another term I plan to keep using on YOY. Right,
1: the reverse timeline for women is this expectation that society puts on them that you have to have your children by 35. You have to. You absolutely, if you're going to have children, have a moral duty to have them by the age 35. But isn't it, un,
2: quote unquote, unhealthy to have them at an older age?
1: So we're told, I mean, in other countries, that age is as old as 40. In some countries, it's older. It's it's like it's all about how as as somebody who studies statistics, it's all about where you cut the data. And is it really that big of a difference if the difference is 0. 0.002 or 0. 0.003? Right. OK, so like that's it all comes down to where you cut the data. And in America, we've decided to cut the data at 35. So everybody is working off of this reverse assumption that at 35 I have to have kids. So if I have to have, I have to be finished procreating by 35, that means if I want two kids at the very minimum, I have to be married by 30 because I need five years to have kids married by 30. That means I need to meet somebody that I will marry at least by bare minimum at the age of 28. That means to be engaged at 28, which means I need to meet that person by 25. So we have three years to get to know each other and then like two years to be engaged and then like a year of marriage. And then this is the reverse timeline. This is how a lot of women are organizing their lives. And when they don't hit that expectation, a lot of people think, oh, she's not married by 30. That means she's not meeting her expectations. Like that expectation is just, it, it's way bigger than that. its It's meeting somebody by like 25. It's when you are slowly passing the point where you thought you would find him, that your entire life organization process starts to unravel. And that becomes, uh, cognitively, a very interesting place to occupy.
0: I'm occupying that place. I'm the oldest grandchild in my family on both sides, and I just turned 30-ish without a boyfriend. This show is the way of overdoing my answers to my family's questions about my dating life. The pressure I feel to get on track ties back to this good kid rule-following complex that my generation has.
1: I do think our culture puts so much pressure on women to lead a life that is sanctioned. And I think a lot of women, especially in our generation, you you see so much less um, exploration and women our generation than even like in the 60s. Because in the 60s, it was glorified to be a hippie and like go out and smoke weed in a field. <laughs> Sometimes I really want people to interview my mom. Like, <laughs> like yeah, I mean, uh, it was like this celebration of fucking with institutions. And and now I feel like our generation is almost reinforcing institutions like we're, we're going to be the, the good kids. like we're gonna to go to school and get good grades. and when we graduate we'll get good jobs and and, and that's totally not what's happening. <laughs> obviously, the economies um, but nevertheless, that mentality, I think was pervasive, especially uh, amongst women. It was like I mean you see this like women are outperforming men. In school and in the career world, I think amongst people under 35, women are earning more money. Mm-hmm. They are more likely to own a house. They're on every marker they're doing marketedly better than men are, mm-hmm. demographically. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a product of us being like, "I'm going to be the good girl. I'm going to do what's expected of me." And, and, and it's a really difficult thing to shake. I've sort of made it my life project at this point to be hyper aware of that. And and I see it amongst a lot of my friends. Like even women that I were like women studies majors at very liberal colleges still fall to this expectation of needing to get married by thirty. And I don't think it's an automatic response to turning twenty five, but I do think as you get closer to thirty, mm-hmm. you see more and more of the people especially if you think you Facebook, but you are now made aware of all the people in your life who Who live very similar lives to you who are going and doing what is quote unquote the correct thing which is getting married and having babies by 30 and there is this fear that women have in the back of their mind it's am i doing the right thing right am i it am i leading a life that's the good girl life, or am I going to be left behind? Am I, go, or am I foreclosing opportunities as a woman by not nailing down a man right now? Mm-hmm. Like any man.
0: <laughs> like, and I think that's, I think that's a, it's a fear. Yeah, it's a real fear. And we've all known that bride, right? So what Holly is saying is that guys date aimlessly until they identify as an adult the adult switch, while women are more likely to be planning for adulthood or feeling pressures of this reverse timeline. And they want to enter adulthood with a partner. We want to get Comcast with a boyfriend. And when that doesn't happen for us, we internalize it, decide we're flawed. And people
1: think that, like, all these teenagers are out there having sex all the time, and, like... Actually, most of the people that I've met since I've graduated from college in this very hyper-educated, professional, super successful, stupid world we live in were virgins until college. So it's, it's not just, like, everything is delayed. It's not just marriage. Everything is delayed, right? Everything. Like, like I was a good boy until college, and so now college is my time to, like, party and be sleeping around and hook up because I didn't do it in high school because I had to get into a good school, and I didn't get into Harvard. I got into here, but I still got to party. Um, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Their teenage years were t- years very sheltered and very much living with the expectation of being successful. And so, yeah, and they had to delay what they thought were their teenage years right. to college, and then and, and then they like delayed their college experience for adulthood, and then you see that you definitely see that. Like um, we're in San Francisco right now, but like all you have to do is like walk down the marina and see all these frat brothers who are now living the what they thought was their college like years. Now that they make a lot of money, it's like it's like extending the fraternity experience into their adulthood because for reasons that defy logic they make a lot of money (laughs) doing things that they did not learn in school because they knew a secret handshake (laughs) and i will say that um i am not afraid of saying that but you know and they make a lot of money now so they've extended the fraternity years past um college and these are the years in which they go on dates with twenty two year olds and say, Look, I'm not looking for something serious. Just so you know. Like, well then <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, okay. But they but they still
2: plan on getting married anyway. Oh yes. When they finished having their fun. So like what, forty?
1: No, I mean I think they think they'll get I I think a lot of dudes are are pushing back their marriage age to um past their thirties. I think I think if you were to interview, you got a lot of men your age at 22. I think they, they're shooting for a post-30 marriage. Hmm. And the interim time is, I mean, especially their early 20s. I think their later 20s, they start cooling out of whatever that is. Um, but I do think their early 20s are reserved and protect it and defend it against from the encroachment of female intimacy like god forbid oh my god I don't want it no 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 She, she wants a relationship like I swear to god I was living in this the early my early 20s honestly felt like I was constantly censoring myself lest I let out a whisper of adult responsibility and scare off every man in sight like
0: oh I'm gonna buy a couch like oh my god you can't, you can't buy a couch, that's adult. That's like real adult. I've been there, where I'm constantly trying not to act my age. Do not mention having a savings account. Go to him in his loft in Bushwick. Tell him how much you love pizza. Agree to play the video games. Okay, I'm done interrupting this magic. I'm just going to wind up and let these two go until almost the end of the show. Again, we're listening to a conversation I arranged between Hollywood that's her real name, who's been researching dating for Ph.D. sociology work, and throaty Avery Truffleman, who's just now entering post-college dating. If you're still with us, just sink into this last part, because it leaves the research and becomes an inspiring personal manifesto. Yes, I just said personal manifesto and inspiring in the same sentence, but I think you'll love it. One of
1: my um, committee members said when I was doing this, was like you need to ask women if they feel like they've been treated well. In their past relationships, regardless of how they ended,
0: yeah, do
1: you feel like you were treated well? And I think what happens when we discuss romantic careers, especially the career, is that women collect a lot of experiences of ill treatment uh, as the you know the, the recipient of men feeling like because it was casual they didn't have to respect their feelings or because it was um, not a, a "Quote unquote," relationship that you know their what they wanted didn't matter, and I and I think that's and that's what I collect a lot of in the interview is a lot of experiences where women felt like they weren't treated particularly well, and I interview men the same way, and, and I'm not saying men don't have experiences where they're not treated well, believe me, I hear them all, um, but I think even men retrospectively say they I, they would treat people badly and that they're learning from their past mistakes. And I, I think I
2: mean, is it because women have kind of kinder intentions in terms of just wanting to be together and like give love? <laughs> I mean, because I don't know. I I went out on a date with this guy the other night, and I just haven't heard from him. And it's so easy to be like, "Oh, what a dick!" But you know, I was thinking, like, well, you know, if he wasn't into it, he's trying not to reject me. But you know, he doesn't want to give back affection which is like, and you just can't find, you can't, it's really hard to find a nice way to do that.
1: Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I, I mean, okay. So to go back to your point, do I think women are more kinder and, and gentler uh, or just have like
2: the intention to want to stay together is generally kinder than the intention to want to be independent.
1: Um, you know, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but the one that pops out immediately is that we don't have a culture that supports us um, flitting from, partner to partner. Um, We don't have this 20-something male experience that men are, you know, expected to have, are reinforcing each other to have, that they feel like they're missing, what is that whole fear of missing out bullshit, where they feel like if they're not, you know, partying it up um, and getting laid and hitting the bars every weekend in the marina, that they're missing out on some fundamental life course stage. And we don't have that. Women do not have that. And, and I, I will say that that's a definitive, not there yet, kind of um, inequality between men and women. That's culturally reinforced by movies. Every fucking Judd Apatow movie out there basically says that. Men have this period of time where they're allowed to fuck around and be goofballs and not be responsible. And I don't think women are given that same space that they're expected to figure their shit out earlier. And we don't go around slapping each other on the back when we get laid. Really? I feel like we do. I I feel like the hookup scene is like,
2: everybody in the pool. Like, let's all do it. I don't know. And just maybe it's like, I've watched too many episodes of Girls. Or, I don't know. And I feel like that's what college was like for me. Like, ah,
1: who'd you hook up with? Who'd you hook up with? Ah, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe there's some, there's... I, I can't help but feel like that's just not what's going on. I feel like everybody in the pool. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I feel like women are sort of like preparing for adulthood earlier than men are. And I think that it leads them more vulnerable to being hurt when their expectations aren't met by mismatched gender expectations of how your 20s are supposed to go. I think I think some people resign themselves that they'll never find that person or anybody that they can be emotionally um, vulnerable with. I think that goes on a lot. I think that's dangerous is that we, we fall into this belief that your 20s are sort of just for hooking up and that your emotional needs are just going to have to be put on the shelf for a while until you figure out yourself. And people keep doing, and this is just a universal thing is that people keep thinking like next year I'll figure this adulthood thing out. Next year I'll figure this adulthood thing out. And the truth is, is like, it's a, it's a social construct. Nobody figures it out. I know people in their thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, who've never figured it out. And it's not something that one day you're going to wake up and feel. If you don't feel it now, you're never going to feel that way. And, And that's fine. It's not a big deal, but But in that same way, I feel I wish we could kind of feel
2: that way about relationships. Like you're never going to know what it's like to be an adult and you will never like own another or like another person will never truly belong to you. And maybe it's just because I've only dealt with like the, you know, I just graduated. Maybe it's because I've only known like that scene for the past four years. But at this point, I'm I'm like, okay. I've you know, I've made my my peace with it. Like I will just never no one will ever belong to me. Or i try to think that way. And I don't know, like what you said about ambiguity just being a, a hallmark of modern relationships. Like, yeah. I mean, I just, I'm trying to get comfortable with knowing that I'll never know. But I don't know if that's possible.
1: Yeah, oh God, yeah. I could talk about this topic for hours. Here we go. Okay, so the ambiguity thing wouldn't be so terrifying if we didn't live in a culture that celebrated men having sex with women casually and at the expense of whatever she wants, right? So having having that in the back of your head, engaging in casual sex is something that I find horrific. Knowing that this guy is going to get, you know, some kind of, even if it's just internalized validation from having sex with a person because the culture mandates that he should makes that ambiguity that much more unbearable for women, Right. Like he's going to get laid and he's going to get props, even if they're internalized. And he never tells anybody because the culture applauds and validates men for having a higher number. Right. That's something that needs to stop. That's not okay, And that's what makes the ambiguity suck. Like that's uncomfortable for women to play a role in that and knowing that he could easily just use the same social equipment that we use for dating to up his numbers. And that's terrifying. Like, he's online dating saying he wants a long-term relationship. And actually, all he really wants is a casual hookup buddy. That's dangerous. That's where the ambiguity gets dangerous.
2: Dangerous just in terms of heartbreak? Well,
1: not just heartbreak. It's just, like, I find it morally repugnant that that scene is okay. And that it's okay to um, be ambiguous when, in fact, you actually know what you want. And you're using the ambiguity as a cover... To get what you want at the expense of what she's not being amb- ambiguous about. That's why it gets really confusing. Hence the term ambiguity, but it's very messy. It's very messy, and I find it very, I just find the idea that we are applauding people for this to be not okay. So, but to go back to what you're saying before, to give you an entirely different sound bite, uh, to be comfortable with the ambiguity, be comfortable with this idea that you don't own another person, right? That is a really profound idea, and that is something that I think we as a culture have not quite gotten around to figuring out, because again, this is a very Eastern idea that you don't, that nobody belongs to you, that relationships are not necessarily licenses of ownership and that jealousy and uh, resentment and all the things that come with being in a relationship with somebody are in part a product of a belief system where we do believe we own other people. And I think that's something that I'm even working on. Uh, everybody I know who has had a couple of burn bridges in their past is like working on these ideas that what is a relationship if you don't own the person? What is a relationship if it's not going to be permanent? The ambiguity of it is well, what is a commitment? What does commitment mean? What is monogamy? And so that's something that I, I grapple with too is, is telling, you know, trying to document what hasn't been studied. For decades, right? I'm coming at this saying, we historically do not know how people dated in the 80s or the 70s or the 90s, and I'm coming at this looking at the last dating book that I read, probably the one of the best job um, dating books that I've read is um, from the front porch to the back seat, and it was trying to document. It's a great name, but it was trying to document the historical phenomenon of dating and how it evolved. It still hasn't, it's it still no, we've gotten anywhere close to the eighties or the nineties or, or like, so we don't have a definitive history of how people were dating in the past, but it's not enough to watch like Saved by the Bell and figure it out. Oh my God. Saved by the Bell. <laughs> I mean, how, how are they dating?
2: I don't know. I just feel like it's all any, you know, it's like what
1: movies and TV shows are about. Yeah, I, like, that's like... I mean, I ask people, how did you learn to date? how did you learn to do this? Right. It's not something anybody was doing in college. I'll tell you that much. So how did you learn? How did you learn to date? And people tell me it's, it's movies, it's TVs. Like, yeah, you're right. It mediates everybody's understanding of what dating is and you can't escape it, especially because people don't know what they're doing and they'll, and they admit to it. Everyone admits to it. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what you're supposed to say on a first date. I don't know what you're supposed to ask. I don't know what, um, is okay and not okay. I mean, you hear that, like, don't talk about politics or religion. Right. Like, why not? Shouldn't you? <laughs> like, yeah, weed them out early. <laughs> By the way, I'm a radical communist. <laughs> Seriously, I'm a radical communist feminist. Are you okay with that? Tell me now, because I don't want to waste the next 45 minutes. Let's go. Adults in their 50s who have no idea what we're going through when it comes to like online dating or what and like people think whenever i talk to older adults about what dating's like they think that i must just be out there having casual sex all the time that i'm going to bars and just sleeping with you. that's like wh- like what what do they think you know an attractive 20 something woman is doing these days is just not what's going on right like i i can't even describe to them how people think when a guy messages me on online dating and asks me, I should go out with him Mm -hmm. as if I'm not getting like 40 requests a day and I have to sift through them somehow. And if it's not, you know, if it's just like, so I'm not entitled to respond to that, but people think I am right. And, And cause it's because they don't see the full picture of what my dating life is like. So I think when you, you start seeing more and more women being courageous and saying, look, I've been mistreated. I have experienced abuse. I've experienced sexual assault, or I've experienced this, this, and this, and this on dating. I mean, Andrea's show is light and it's comical and it's funny, but you know, you see more examples of women experiencing things and talking about their experiences. That's what feminism is. It's, it's, it's describing the full gamut of female experiences and, and opening it up to discussion and deconstruction and, understanding what about my dating life needs to be fixed and it's not just like the like oh you need to like lower your standards like no it's not just me needing to lower my standards it's it's like we need to be discussing this at a larger societal level that you can't get away with just saying like sup baby doesn't that like that just shouldn't be okay anymore Mm -hmm. and that's what I think is going to change all of this is opening up our lives to discussion Because again, like I said, that's what feminism is. That is what, you know, the feminine mystique was. If we can go back to that example, I realize it's a little bit dated, but that was what it was. It's like my life sucks. Let me open it up for discussion. Mm -hmm. Like here's what I do: I take a lot of opiates because my life is so dead inside, right? Because all I do is clean and cook, and my husband comes home at five, and that's my life. That opened up a lived experience to other people who are all living the same experience. And letting people in and say, holy shit, you know, now that you put it that way, that's kind of fucked up. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is. I think that's what's going to change everything. So like, that's why I'm such a huge supporter of Andrea's show is saying like, I'm going to, I'm just totally out here saying like, let's stop putting this under the rug and saying this is par for the course. It's not par for the course to be sexually objectified on a dating site every single day because you want to find somebody to love you. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. If you say it out loud, that's ridiculous. And yet every woman has the same experience on that damn site. Yeah. Like, OKCupid founders should be ashamed of themselves and they should really think about their model, but they won't because they haven't changed their model in 10 years. And it works because what's the alternative? So
2: this is like the the big question I want to ask you, and I'm sure you hear a lot, is just like, are we doomed? Is this just how it is? Are we like, are we just both men and women are we just like doomed to be unsatisfied by dating
1: i don't think so i I think i i have a lot of optimism which is totally uncharacteristic of me but you've given up on dating i i haven't given up on love i've given up on dating uh (laughs) (laughs) distinction the the point is that I think, yeah, if you, like, what was it? Who said this? Was it Mark Twain who said if you scratch a cynic hard enough outbleeds a uh, jaded optimist or something like that? I'm cynical about dating because it's a contrived social experience that I don't think quite maps onto the actual psychological reality of love. Uh, it's just pure judgment and assessment and quick, rapid rejection, right? That's not what love's about. You know, I'm doing my dissertation, but I'm also very open to talking about relationships and where we could be going and what is our potential in dating and love and relationships. Like, why do we feel like this is so funny and stupid? And like, why aren't we giving it the kind of weight that I think it deserves? Because if you can't be conscientious and compassionate with someone you're having sex with, how the hell do you expect to be compassionate and open with the rest of the world? Like, Jesus, that's messed up. Right? Like, where where are we going with this? If if people think you can use another person for sex, that if you don't need to be honest and open with them to have sex with them, where do we go from there? What does that say about us that our culture allows for this or that we can't be intimate with other people and we're we're totally struggling with intimacy as a people? And I'll say that. America has a huge intimacy problem. And that is not going to be solved by viagra or any corporate pill or whatever the hell people want to talk about there's an intimacy issue and there's this and there's something to be said for raw authenticity and emotional vulnerability and i think that's where we're going with this that's what's going to fix all this
2: it's funny because when you say like we need to change i of course i'm like men need to change like i'm ready to talk about feelings but it like goes would you say it goes both ways?
1: Yeah. Are you really deep down? Are you prepared to talk about your feelings with men, or do you have a fear that they're going to do something to counter your your admitting of feelings?
2: Yeah, like I'm scared that. I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm scared of seeming too enthusiastic or interested, or I've, and I think a lot of women are. So that's why I mean, you know, like, they need to change. Like, they need to be receptive to it, and like. Would you say that in our own individual lives, like women should stop holding back and just be as enthusiastic and interrogative as possible and let the men be scared away if they, if they are?
1: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying, look, do not be limited by, like, this is what I'm trying to say is that we live in a culture where there is this heterosexual imperative for women to be in relationships. And I think that's holding us back. I really do. Like, the, the moment that I realized I do not have to be in a relationship to be successful was the moment that I really became liberated as a person. And people, I know plenty of women who say, well, I don't really need a boyfriend. I'm cool the way I am. But like, I'm telling you that like, I used to say that, but when I really meant it, was it too, that was like shades of difference. Like that was a huge monumental moment in my life. And that happened when I was 26 years old. And when I really, really, really became aware of it, and and, and I started getting to the point where I was turning down very, very attractive men, right? I was saying like, look, I'm doing something with my life right now that I should have done when I was 22. And that was be my own person (laughs) (laughs) and really learn to love myself because I'm awesome. And it took me a really long time to get to that point. And I'm saying that because I felt very limited because I really felt like I needed to be in a relationship. And because we live in a society that tells women you need to be this and you need to be that. And men won't like you if you don't do this. And men won't like you if you do that. Like, We are constantly being poked and prodded into this corset of gender that is so limiting and so so, so restrictive that I couldn't be who I needed to be. And that includes all this emotional fireworks that I I actually live with now. I am totally all over the map in terms of what I believe in and what I think and who I am and what I want to yell at and like what weird candy I feel like eating at 11 p.m. Right? Like that's where I am. Mm -hmm. And do I think there's a guy out there that wants it? Actually, no, (laughs) I don't. And I'm okay with that now. In a way, I was never going to be okay with it at 23. Right? I'm okay with feeling like there's probably not a guy out there that's gonna be okay with this, and that's fine. And like <laughs> every progressing day, I become weirder and weirder. Mm-hmm. Like every progressive day I find something new and random that I'm like, okay, now I'm gonna throw myself into that. That's interesting. That's what I want, <laughs> like rock climbing or something like that, or like painting. i like I have really weird hobbies at this point. But it became almost a mission for me to like reject this idea of being in a relationship. And it's really difficult to explain to people that it's taken me 26 years to get to that point. I'm 28 now and I'm still riding that wave where I feel like I really, really don't think a relationship is what I need right now. And I'm so liberated by that and saying that if the right man were to walk into my life, he'd have to meet me where I am. And that's a really, really high expectation. And I don't have it, right? I, I'm like, I don't expect to find that guy, but I'm not gonna keep trying to shovel guys into you know, boxes and say, I want you to be that guy for me. Mm-hmm. I'm done doing that. I did that for a while where I went on dates where I, I had an intu- intuitive feeling that that guy was not going to see the full spectrum of me. <laughs> And accept it for all it was, but I wanted to make it work so bad that I would hide parts of myself or I would downplay parts of myself or I wouldn't be as loud and as crazy and colorful as I really am. So I could try to make that relationship work. Mm -hmm. And the experience of doing that was so wholly deadening that the last two years have been like this roller coaster ride of just constantly being unafraid of saying, look, I'm done. I'm done playing whatever role you think I need to play because that's who you're attracted to. And I, and I'm sympathetic to the fact that society has conditioned you to be attracted to certain kinds of women over other kinds. I'm totally sympathetic to that. Don't, don't think that I don't think we're all encased in this scary gender, um, system, but I'm done being her. I'll never be her, and I won't try to be her. And If you want to meet me where I am and grow with me, that's cool. But I'm not going to play that role. And I think that's what I want younger women to be liberated from, is that you don't have to be a certain person to be in a relationship. You don't have to be—and, God, the utility—oh, how do I say this? The maximizing of attractiveness, right? Women think they need to be attractive to as many men as possible, maximize their attractive utility function (laughs) like i need to be attractive to all men at all times that's impossible but we still feel like that's our quest in life is to like be as attractive Uh, yeah. yeah be as attractive as possible and i'm trying to make myself so myself that there's probably only going to be like four guys out there that ever like, yeah, I want in on that. And that's fine. And that's cool. And I'm, but I'm accepting it now in a way that I would never have accepted it five years ago. Mm-hmm. Five years ago, I thought I needed to be the, the paragon of female achievement in order to attract men. I thought that's how you did it. And, and now I'm just not there anymore. And I'm so happier as a person that I'm not there. Mm-hmm. But people don't understand it. Cause they don't, cause again, the expectation is, is the closer you approach 30, the more you should be like, well, Holly, your clock's ticking, your clock's ticking. Like, and I'm like, well, what do you want me to do about it? Mm-hmm. Am I supposed to act differently? Am I supposed to modify my behavior in some way that makes me more attractive to men? Am I supposed to put a muzzle on my mouth and not talk about what I feel? What would you like me to do society? I feel like this narrative is kind of on the rise, though.
2: That like, well, I'm fine. I'm fine alone. I'm, and, and do you think... And I'm not... I, I think... it Yeah, that's... I, I feel like there's there's part of it that's true and genuine, like your epiphany, that you are comfortable in your own skin and don't need a relationship right now. Um, and I do also feel like there's a narrative that's almost mimicking that in a kind of sex in the city way. Like I'm fine until I'm not fine.
1: That's the deceit. That was, that was sex in the city was a huge sort of like, I'm fine, but nevertheless, I'm secretly always looking for a man. Mm -hmm. That was the narrative. That was literally The narrative. And that's infuriating because that's the narrative of every show I've ever seen with a female, like... A strong female
2: lead.
1: Yeah, she's like, yeah, she's strong and tough, except she's always secretly looking for a man. And I'm saying, look, I'm strong and tough, and I'm admitting right now that I'm not secretly looking for a man. In fact, I'm constantly on the defensive saying, look, I actually don't want a man right now. And I say that all the time. Like, I look, unless this guy is absolutely going to be additive to my life in such a, in such a way that I can't even fathom it right now. I'm saying no, because I've learned in relationships that I've diminished myself to make them work in a way that I don't think we've ever expected men to do. Like I look, I, I was in a very long-term relationship in college, all through college with the same guy. There were certain things about him that I really, really valued and my desire for those traits has sharpened, like a sense of humor. He had a he had a pretty good sense of humor. But now I look for people that make me laugh, like hysterically. Now that I make myself laugh all the time and I've really owned this part of my personality where I am a hyper-educated, articulate asshole, I don't need someone else to make me laugh. But if they can make me laugh, that is great. That is sexy. But also somebody that is willing and capable to have these very deep, meaningful conversations, really long conversations about what life is and where I'm going and my world vision and how I want to change the world and what I hope to accomplish. That's become so important to me that that is the overriding function of how I date now. That can you have this really smart, intellectual conversation with me? Are you able to keep up with it? Mm -hmm. And that's been overriding almost any other traits that I've been looking for in guys. And that was not something I thought I, w- I needed back in college.
2: When you say, like, the way you want to change the world, is it kind of, is it through this? Is it changing the way the world dates and finds intimacy?
1: I, I, I mean, I don't like to say, like, the way the world dates. Um, <laughs> but the problem for me is how do I help people realize that everywhere we're going as a people is entirely dependent on how we love everything we ever want to achieve in life is dependent on answering that question. How do we love? Because how do we love is who we are. It's not, identity is not like what things you like and what music you listen to and who you vote for. It's how you love. And if we can't love each other at this individual level, there's no hope for us. So it sounds stupid and it sounds trivial that I study dating, but I see it as the, you know, this is the overall crux of everything.
0: Holly fucking Wood. You can follow her on Twitter at GirlZiplocked. Her research should be wrapping up next May. Keep in mind that she's just now entering the analysis phase of her project. This is all the preliminary stuff mixed with her personal thoughts and experiences. We'll hear her final findings later on. To YOY, the show with a totally out of context celebrity endorsement from Tom Sharpling. I'm
2: really loving the new show YOY.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick, for sticking that on your pledge card. This is almost as good as when Ira Glass said my name.
1: Andrea Salenzi.
0: Nah, it's better. Yeah, it's better. Thank you this week to Avery Truffleman for doing this interview. It was like getting a cassette from your friends on another coast and getting to know them better through the experience. You can subscribe to the YOY podcast and learn more about the music I feature by visiting yoyradio.com. I've been trying to come up with a way to thank you all for your overwhelming support this marathon. And I think we'll have something together to thank you by next week's show. So hold tight. Our podcast artwork is by this year's WFMU Marathon Prom King, Greg Harrison at com, Special thanks to all the great new iTunes reviewers, including Sam, who says he subscribes to over 80 podcasts, and this is easily his new favorite. Flattered. Join me next week for a look at intimacy. Oh, and um, Randy joined Twitter today. Really, he did. His uh, handle is at RandyIsDaman. That's da spelled D A. This is WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online, wfmu.org.